Thank you, worship team, and it's good to have Mr. Daryl Mann back up here. It's good to have you, man. Good. Well, I want to introduce somebody else that's here today for the first time in a long time that we have been praying for for a long time. Mr. Michael Hill is here today. Stand up, Michael. He is here today. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. And Mama's pretty happy about that. And next week, we're so excited because I have the honor to baptize Michael. So we're going to do that on Mother's Day next week. We're excited about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you all. Um, Mike and James are both uh, out this week. And so I um, uh, just want to let you all know, maybe like, where's Mike? And Mike's, uh, he's, Mike does a lot of stuff with missions, and he had to fly to Seattle last night. And he's, he's out doing some uh, on a mission board for one of our organizations that we support. So he's not here today, but just appreciate everybody uh, that's uh, here today. I want to welcome those of you who are online watching with us today. We always appreciate y'all joining us as well. Well, a lot of y'all know we've been doing a, a sermon series called Blind Spot, and if you haven't been here, that's okay. But if you're here for the first time, this is a series we started a few weeks ago called Blind Spot. And obviously, when we think about Blind Spot, we think about our cars, and there's a blind spot in our car, you know, somewhere. Um, um, but in reality, all of us as humans have blind spots, don't we? You know, we have things because of the way we were raised, the things that we believe, where our faith is, the season we are in in our life. We have things that we think and believe and feel, and that sometimes gives us blind spots for things. And hopefully we have people in our life that can call us on that, that love us and, and want to call us on that, help us work through some of those blind spots. So we've been kind of going through uh, different um, uh, characters in the Bible and blind spots that they have, and today we're going to look at another one. But one of the things that I think is easy sometimes for us to have a blind spot about is when we've lost a loved one or had something really tragic happen in our lives. And it's very hard sometimes for people in those times to really see and understand the grace of God. They're hurting, they're grieving, they're trying to process their, their feelings and their emotions. And the loss can seem overwhelming and trying to move forward sometimes simply seems just so difficult or even impossible. And a blind spot can develop that God's not good or that God has somehow punished me or done this terrible thing to me. And uh, Kevin Kim, who's a, a pastor out in California, says this: the logic can be framed like this. And probably all of y'all have heard this before, but some people say this. If evil and suffering exist, but God doesn't stop it, he may be all-powerful, but he's really not a good God. And if evil and suffering exist, but God cannot stop it, he may be good, but then he's not powerful. Either way, the good and all-powerful God of the Bible cannot be. And that's a pretty good argument when you just leave it at that. But we know that God's always working for the good, isn't he? Even when we can't see it, we know it's God is working for the good. I remember watching a movie several years ago um, called The War, and Kevin Costner was in this with Elijah Wood, and um, this was back in the 90s. Sorry, kids, I'm going, oh, it's one of these old movies. But anyway, you know who Kevin Costner is because he's still doing movies. But anyway, he was a, a guy that came back from Vietnam, and he had severe PTSD, really, really bad, and just to function from day to day was very difficult as a dad. Um, as, a, as a husband trying to keep a job, he was struggling and they were poor. And they had a couple of kids, I think a daughter about 13 years old and a son played by Elijah Wood who was ab about 11. 
And towards the end of the movie, he's, uh, he's, he's finally held down a job at a mining company, and he's in the mines, and they have a terrible accident in, a mine, in the mine that he works in, and um, he is injured severely, and they're able to get him out of the mine, but he doesn't survive, and he passes away. And there's this one really powerful scene where um, mom has to tell the two kids that dad didn't make it. He didn't make it. And so this is just right from the movie, raw, like the little boy. This is his reaction that I'm getting ready to kind of share with you. So mom's trying to soften the blow with some of the things that we say in, in the church or in Christianese, if I may use that term sometimes. Well, God just took him home. And the son says, we're his home, mom. The stupid Lord can have him later. Why did he have to take my daddy? What did I do so wrong that he took my daddy? He could take anybody, Charles Manson, super old people that have been around over 100 years. But my daddy was only 34 years old. Why did he have to take him? And he shakes his fist towards heaven and says, I needed him more than you did, God. I needed him more than you. And man, when I saw that in the movie, I was just like, oh my gosh. That's just real raw emotion, isn't it? That you feel when something like that. That that really struck my heart by the grief of an 11-year-old. But that raw emotion that he expressed was very real at the time of his father's death. And at some point in the movie, the boy began to gather his thoughts and gather his emotions with people that came around him and walked him through all of that hurt and pain. And anyone who experiences loss, and all of y'all have, you know that's a process, isn't it? It doesn't just go away. It takes a while. And you have good days and you have bad days and you just kind of have to walk through that with people that love you and care about you. So today I want us to look at a lady in the Bible who experienced some incredible loss in a relatively short time in her life. And she was really, really struggling with this. She was a God believer. She had faith in God. She was an Israelite. But she was blaming God for what had happened to her in her life. And she was angry at God. And you know what I want you all to hear me say today? God's okay with that. If you're mad at God right now, you're struggling with God, that's okay. He's a big enough God to know that you're struggling. And he's all right with that. He wants you to go through that process and hopefully come out understanding who he really is. But she was blaming God and she's angry. And as we go through the story, we see God was working through this tragic situation for something powerful and meaningful, not only in her life and in her family's life and in the life of those around her, but ultimately he was working for all of humanity in this, as we'll see towards the end this morning. But let's look at Ruth. Uh, some of y'all may be familiar with the book of Ruth. Um, we're going to look at chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. And it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and Tzimelech, and were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Melon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons, and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. 
May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And she said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is bitter for me than for you because the, God, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman, the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she, called them, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now in this culture, in this ancient culture, people knew not only what their names were, but they also knew what their names meant. You know, like, I don't, I don't know if y'all know what Craig means, but I looked it up one time and it's Dweller of the Crags. You know, something really exciting about like that. Yeah, but most time we name our kids because we, we like somebody that has that name or we like the way it sounds, right? But we don't necessarily know what our name. Some of y'all do. I don't want to exclude anybody. But in the Jewish culture, they knew when you said somebody's name, you not only heard their name, but you knew, oh, that means this. And so Naomi's name meant sweet or pleasant. But her life seemed to be anything but that, as we read. She and her husband had to move from their home in Bethlehem in Judea because of a severe famine. The food situation was so desperate there that they finally had to move to a nearby country. And that didn't come lightly or without a lot of prayer and thought. And, but it just, you know, uh, oh, it'll be okay in a couple of weeks. Oh, it'll be okay in a couple of months. Oh, it'll be okay in maybe a year. And ultimately they said, no, we've got to move. We can't feed ourselves or our two boys. We've got to move. They didn't want to, but they didn't notice where they lived in Bethlehem. Interesting. When do we usually hear that? Was that why we maybe played the Christmas music at the beginning of this in the morning? No, but it is Bethlehem where Jesus was born. But they had these two sons, and Moab apparently had food, even though this was a pagan culture, and even though this was an enemy of Israel over the years, and they had to do what they had to do and what they believed they had to do to survive. So they moved from Bethlehem. To, to Moab, and they were refugees fleeing for a better life. We still see this today in many situations. And so if you think about where did the Moabites come from, well, we go all the way back to Genesis 19, and you remember Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his daughters, and 
Um, both daughters, through this really bad scheme of theirs, really kind of uh, incestuous um, uh, scheme that they had, both daughters conceived son, sons by their father by getting him drunk. And the son of the youngest daughter was named Amnon, where we get the Ammonites, who we find out later were the, the thorns in the side of Israel. And then the son of the oldest daughter was named Moab, who was the father of the Moabites. And this is where they come from. And they would become two very powerful nations that would constantly be at war with Israel. And the Moabites were a pagan nation, which means they did not worship Yahweh. So they're moving into a place where it's a pagan nation of many gods. You know, they were polytheistic. That means they had many different gods in that culture. And idolatry was one of the innate characteristics of all the nations that surrounded Israel. And that's why Israel would get in trouble because all these different gods that everybody else had when they would visit, they would be lured into a lot of that. And their proximity proved a continuous threat to the eastern borders of Israel and the pagan religious practices they followed. And those always, like I said, tempted the Israelites to commit adultery against Yahweh. So verse 3 tells us Naomi's husband and his name meant something too. You know what his name meant? Yahweh is king. So Elimelech dies, and so Naomi was now a widow with two sons in a foreign land. And every time she hears someone come to her and say, I'm really sorry to hear about Elimelech, she doesn't just hear, I'm sorry to hear about Elimelech, but she hears, I'm sorry about Yahweh is king passing. Think about that for a minute. It just kind of gets in, it's a little salt in the wound, if you will. So she moves on with her sons, and they would marry, we're told in the text there, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. This also may be a source of concern for Naomi because she goes, I wanted my boys to marry Jewish girls, but we weren't even in our own hometown. We weren't even in our own country. So they married Moabite women. But our text tells us that they were living there for 10 years, and her sons, Malon and Kilion. Now, those are the names that the writer writes, but that was really not their given names. Those were not their Jewish given names. Those were actually nicknames because of what happened to them. Malon really means weakling, and Kilion means sickly, because that's how ultimately they passed away. But the writer chose to, to give us that. And this is more grief from Naomi. I've lost my husband, and then 10 years later, not one of my sons, but both of my sons die. And in this ancient culture, being a widow, in any culture it's tough, but in this ancient culture it was really tough. And at least before this, she had her two sons to take care of her, but now they're both gone. And she's not young anymore, and you can hear in her, her talk with the daughters-in-law, I'm not young. It's not like I'm going to be able to get another, another husband, which makes it more difficult as a widow's going through this tough economic time in a foreign land with no sons now and no husband. And in verse 6, we read that Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. But I'm, her, I'm sure she didn't, wasn't thinking this is something the Lord had done. I think she probably thought because of her grief, because of her anger, because of her blind spot toward God's grace, that you know what? It just happened. Finally, the famine has ended. But no, God was in this. And not sure Naomi really heard that, but she was going to try to move back home. But as they start to leave for Bethlehem, as you notice, as I read, Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws as they're getting ready to make the trip, you know, why are y'all going with me? This is crazy. This is your home here in Moab. You have your mother. You have your family here. This is where you've grown up. Why would you go with me? And she tries to get them to stay. Your mothers are here. And you're not going to be able to find, you know, you may find another husband. Probably easier there in your own country. Why would you want to come to my country? 
And finally, Orpah says, okay, and she goes back home to Moab. But it says that Ruth clung to her, and her name means friend or companion. And it makes a very, there was, and then she makes this very often quoted speech that maybe y'all have heard before. And she says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. And that famous speech she gives, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She has developed a strong bond with her mother-in-law through death. I mean, she's lost her husband. She's lost her father-in-law. She's lost her brother-in-law. She's experiencing death and loss as well. And she doesn't want to separate from Ruth. She wants to cling to her, and so she does. So now, Ruth is the one who's going to be a widow in a foreign land, isn't she? See, she's leaving Moab, and now she's going to Bethlehem, and she's going to be the widow in a foreign land. But Ruth, in that land of Bethlehem where the Moabites are looked down on, oh, it's a Moabite, they know who people are. But as you read, Ruth is absolutely committed. She doesn't care. She's not going to leave Naomi. And as Naomi and Ruth made it to Bethlehem, the text tells us the whole town was stirred because of these ladies coming into town. And the women goes, can this be Naomi? She's left more than 10 years ago. And they go, isn't that Naomi? And she says, you heard it, I'm going to read it again though to emphasize, this is where she is in her grief and her hurt. Don't call me Naomi, sweet or pleasant. She said, call me Mara, bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, sweet or pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. No doubt who she thinks did all this to her, right? She's very clear on that. She's going home, but she's still. And as soon as they say her name, which they know means sweet or pleasant, she goes, don't even call me that. Man, she's in a bad place, isn't she? She's hurting, and understandably so. And it's not exactly the most positive homecoming speech, but this is where Naomi was in her life. She was grieving, and life had been hard. Maybe Naomi is catching up with her old friends, and they go, oh, where's Elimelech? Where are your boys? Well, they're all dead. And it's like, oh, awkward. And it's hard for her. She's lost that much in such a short time. But in the next two chapters, which we're not going to read, and y'all are going, But I always like to leave out part of it for you to read at home because I want to challenge y'all to read your Bible. But this second and third chapters are very, very clear about what happens to Ruth during this whole time. But we see God at work at the things for the good of Naomi and Ruth. And not only them and their family, but like I said, for all of humanity. And we're going to see that in a minute. Ruth, through the wisdom and guiding of Naomi, she's able to meet this man named Moaz. And through his compassion and his kindness and his grace, he offers this new foreign refugee woman who's a Moabite um, a new opportunity in life. And she takes it. And because Ruth is faithful and kind and listens to her mother-in-law's advice because she's from there, she knows the culture, God starts to remove that blind spot, not only from Naomi, but also from Ruth as well. And they see that God is present. God is working. God is merciful and loving. Pastor, uh, Teaching Pastor Kevin Kim out of California says, here's the great thing about the book of Ruth, and I never saw this before, so this is interesting to me. In a lot of books in the, in the, in the Old Testament, we see, we've even talked about that with Moses. There's a burning bush. There's some sort of a miraculous thing where God speaks to somebody. We see the Red Sea parting. We see the, the plagues. And we see all kind of, you know, like with Jonah, there's a whale. And then he gets swallowed and spit back up. And all those miraculous type things. 
But there's nothing in the book of Ruth, y'all, that's miraculous. Nothing. There's none of that. There's just people working through their pain, but God is there all along. Nothing miraculous, but Ruth is being kind. She's being faithful to her mother-in-law who's gone through a hard time. The people in Bethlehem are going, whoa, Naomi's really hurting. we got to do something. They're being kind and loving and walking her through that pain. So there's nothing explicit. There's no overt interventions from God. There's no dramatic answers to some real flowery prayer. There's just a group of people that are trying to survive. They see nothing but mundane and hard times. They make decisions about where they're going to live and where they're going to eat. She tells her you've got to go out there and glean from the fields, all these different things. But when you read it, we see clearly that God is powerfully at work. You see, it was God who broke the famine and opened the way. Remember, the writer of Ruth says that. God did something about it. But Naomi wasn't looking at that. It just happened to break. It was just a coincidence to her at the time because of where she was. It was God who preserved a kinsman redeemer to Naomi's line. It was God who convicts Ruth to stay with her mother-in-law. It was God who led Boaz, whose name means in him is strength. So again, when she goes, you need to meet Boaz, she's going, see it. Ruth, he's in every moment. Boaz may not see it, but we see it. God is in every scene. He's in every act. He's in every moment of this play. He's right there in the midst of their sorrows and also in their joys. There are invisible fingerprints all over this story. But here's the, the, the good news, y'all. It's in our lives too, isn't it? If we really look for it, you may say, man, some of you right now are probably hurting. You go, yeah, I don't see it. I'm glad you think it's coming, Craig, but I don't see it right now. And I'm sure there's some people out there today that are feeling that. But here's what we need to say, see today. That we don't develop, if we, uh, you know, we have to be very careful because that we don't develop that blind spot of God has done this to me. What did I do to deserve this? And miss His grace that's there in the midst of our struggle and loss. We must learn to see the signs of hope that He's constantly working, even when He seems like He's silent. One scholar put it like this, God is most powerfully present even when he seems most noticeably absent. I'm going to read that again. God is most powerfully present even when he seems most noticeably absent. That means he's always working. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it. So I want to fast forward through chapters 2 and 3 and go all the way to the end of Ruth. It's a real short book and some of y'all are like, I'm not reading that. It's only four chapters. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I'll do that. It's four chapters. So at the end, starting in verse 13, this is where it all came to. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And that was a, a great process, how God worked through all of that. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. And the women, these Bethlehem women who have been walking her through her grief, through all of this, it says, they said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. You see what these ladies, these friends of her who are walking through this grief of her are saying? They're saying, God did this for you. We know you came into town and you were hurt and you were beat down. We understand that. But now you see that God's been working and he's doing something great in your life. And it says, Naomi, and notice they say, Ruth, who loves you, is better than seven. That's the perfect number a lot of times in the Bible, according to, uh, to the Israelites. So 
She's been better to you than seven sons. We know you lost two precious sons, but she's been better to you than seven sons. And so they're getting her to look at things differently. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And that's not just any ordinary David. A lot of y'all know who I'm talking about. David as in King David, the greatest king that Israel would ever have. And the next few verses give the future genealogy that leads to King David. So you realize a foreign woman came in as a part of the genealogy of Jesus. Do y'all get that? If we go to Matthew, the first chapter, there's the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes, and it even goes further than the book of the Ruth here because it actually says it doesn't just include Boaz's name because usually in genealogies in the Jewish world, only men were mentioned. But Matthew, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, because God wants us to know this, says uh, that Boaz's name, but he also said, and Ruth was his mother. Because they want you to know, remember all that bad stuff that happened? God was working for the good to bring about Jesus into the world. That's amazing, isn't it, when you think about that? So in 2010, I got the incredible opportunity to go um, to Ethiopia with my, uh, where my friend. I met uh, a guy named Jonas Kebedi. We have supported Jonas and Grace for All here for 20-something years. I can't even remember. But I met um, Jonas in college in 1985. And he was from Ethiopia, didn't know a lot about him. He started coming to our church, telling me about all these awful things that were happening. And he escaped death. I mean, he was, he was almost killed in Ethiopia, but he got to come over to this country. But he always had this vision and this dream of going back and trying to start a hospital. But God had other plans. He didn't want him to start a hospital. He wanted him to start an orphanage um, for street children, and that's what Jonas did. So we stayed friends all those years. Southwest started supporting his ministry at the very infant stages. And in 2010, I was able to go. Now, Mike's been several times, several people in our church have been. But I just want to tell you all, in that 2010 trip, um, when you go to a third world country and you see things that you don't see here, it blows your mind. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. You just see that it, it, it's just amazing. But even in the midst of that, I saw God was working. Because as soon as we got there, everybody knew Jonas. I couldn't believe it. Everybody knew Jonas. These kids just called him Uncle Yoni, and they knew how much he had done in their lives, but I didn't really realize how much he had really done. I mean, I knew over the years he had brought kids over here for medical stuff, but I just didn't realize the effect he had on the people in that community. So one of the kids I saw, though, while I was there was a kid who had a messed up hand. I mean, half of his hand had been cut off with a machete and thrown into a fire. He was all burned on this side of his face. And Jonas was telling me the story. I think a parent did this to him. I think his father cut off his hand with a machete and threw him in the fire and left him. And he became a street kid who was begging for every day when Jonas found him. And Jonas invited him to come to his orphanage. And he, and he says, we're going to change his life. So I remember playing ping pong with this guy. I remember talking to him about all these things. And he wasn't bitter. He was just so thankful that he had found Jonas and Grace for All. And it had really changed his life. But I'll be honest. When I saw him, I was like, God, why would you let that happen? Why would you let a kid have his own father chop his hand off and throw him in the fire? I mean, I was mad. I was mad at God. I mean, I'm here on a mission trip, and I'm mad at God. I don't know how good that is, but that's how I felt. I was like, this poor kid. And there were lots of them in this group. And there was another little girl who, from her knees down, had no legs. She was born that way. And she is somehow has 
like flip-flops or some kind of shoes she strapped on this part of her leg and she's walking around with all the other kids you know they're here but she's down here and I'm like how does she do it but she's not slowing down and I was just amazed but then I heard her story and she was abandoned as an orphan and again I'm going God what in the world I was mad and I went on that trip and it was great and I could see that all these things doing but I'm going back home here and they're still going man why does this happen? I'm struggling myself with that. Well, last night, y'all, Jonas invited me to his 30th anniversary celebration of Grace for All. And it was over in Stone Mountain. And I got to go to that. And as soon as I walk in and start going to my, my table, looking for Jonas, and I see this young man who had his part of his hand chopped off in the burns, and he's there, and I hug him and kind of see what he's doing. You know what he's doing now, y'all? He's an immigration lawyer in the United States in Maryland. He got a college degree. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's, that's unbelievable. And he's got his fiance sitting there. He speaks great English. He still speaks Amharic, which this whole thing last night, my daughter Abby went with me. It was about three hours, and 90% of it was in Amharic. So I was like, I was like okay, yeah. At the end, they brought in an a, um, Ethiopian comedian, and he was really funny. I had no idea why it was funny, but I was like, ah, you know. Um, but it was amazing. And then, so he speaks and talks about how much Grace for All has done for him and how much Jonas has done for him. Mike was at our table with us. Mike was there as well. And then the girl, who you remember, who didn't have any below her knees, she walks in, and as soon as I see her face, she's walking. She's got prosthetics, and she stands up in perfect English and says, talks about how Grace for All has changed her life. I'm in the United States now. I'm, I've got my degree in teaching, and I'm going to be a teacher. So it may have taken 13 years for God to get through my head, but now I go, 13 years, God gave me my answer. And just those two kids seeing that God was working through stuff that I thought was, why would you ever let that happen? But everybody at that banquet last night, now y'all get to hear that story and go, man, God is always working. He's always working. He's always working. Even in our hardest moments. Yeah, we can clap about that. So this morning, we're going to offer an invitation as we always do. If you're mad at God, that's okay. If you're struggling with what you're going through, that is okay. There's a lot of people struggling. But you know what? God is always working. Way back hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, in the midst of losing a, a, a husband and sons and all that, God was still working that for the good of those who love the Lord, right? And he still is. So I want to encourage you. But maybe you need to make a decision today to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and follow him. And I pray if you need to do that today, I'll try to walk you there. If you're looking for a church home, man, we are not a perfect church. We mess up all the time. We got our stuff. But we are a church that is committed to even in the midst of that, we're looking, what's God going to do next? What's God going to do next? You know, I, I got mad last night. I about threw my phone across the room last night when I looked and go, there's another stinking shooting. Did y'all see that in Texas last night? And I was like, seriously? Pointless at some mall or something, but God's going to do something. I don't know what. I don't understand it. I don't think it's fair. I'm mad about it. But God's still going to do something in the midst of that, isn't he? So the, the team's going to lead us. Um, if you have a decision, I'll be right here to kind of walk you through it if I can. Um, but we're also 
at this time, right after this song, we're preparing our hearts for communion. If you're visiting with us today, we do this every week. We believe the New Testament church practiced this, that Jesus told us to never forget how much he loves us and how he would always be working for our good. And ultimately, what we really needed was a Savior, and he died on the cross to give us that forgiveness and that grace that we most needed.